Thank you for tuning in. We're going to give it a few more minutes to allow people to join in. So um, as you um, get, are getting settled for today's webinar, I'm going to ask if our production team can display the first um, uh, question, which is kind of a demographics question, so we kind of get a sense of who all is in the room. Or if that doesn't work, if we need to make sure more, more participants are in, we can, we can hold off as well to close that question. So good afternoon or good evening, depending on where you are uh, in our wonderful country. I am so pleased to um, have you join us this evening for a very informative discussion um, that the National Minority Equality Forum and MQF is hosting with our partners from Gilead. 
Um, we titled this webinar COVID-19 Community Healthcare Worker Outreach and Education Program. And for the next hour, we will focus our discussion on the state of affairs of COVID-19 across the US, um, talk about strategies to slow the spread, as well as identification of infection and even treatment um, for individuals who um, have COVID-19. For those of you just joining us, um, there is a question that is displayed on the screen. We ask that you provide some of your demographic information so we kind of get a sense of who the audience is today. So with that, I just want to give a few, a few opening remarks. So I'm um, Latasha Lee. I'm Vice President of Social and Clinical Research and Development for the National Minority Quality Forum. And in that um, regard, I focus a lot on our research efforts, including efforts around COVID-19. Today, I'm pleased to moderate today's discussion. Um, and so I really wanna kind of level set and talk up just a few um, um, points of where we are in this pandemic. Most US states and jurisdictions currently are experiencing substantial um, or high levels of community transmission fueled by the spread of the highly contagious um, Delta variant of COVID-19. COVID-19 cases, hospitalizations and deaths are continuing to increase, especially in communities with low vaccination coverage. And while the number of individuals um, getting vaccinated continues to increase, there are a number of individuals who remain unsure about getting vaccinated and others do not plan to do so. Additionally, there are COVID therapeutics that are available for those who have an active COVID infection, and we'll touch upon those topics um, this evening. So I'm pleased to introduce our two panelists. The first is Rodney, Dr. Rodney Taylor, who's Principal of Medical Science scientist at Gilead Sciences Incorporated. Dr. Taylor is a successful medical science liaison and pharmacist with over 20 years experience in multiple therapeutic areas. He's been with Gilead Sciences for seven years working in respiratory, cardiology, inflammation, and virology. Dr. Taylor currently supports um, resvenazir, which is a treatment for hospitalized patients with COVID-19. Outside of Gilead, you can sometimes find Dr. Taylor reviewing and reconciling residents' medication and assisting in, um, in, in assisted living homes. Dr. Taylor received his Doctor of Pharmacy from the University of Maryland Baltimore School of Pharmacy and is married with two daughters currently living in the Rod, uh, Raleigh-Durham area of North Carolina. Our second panelist is Dr. Uh, Gary Puckern, who I'm sure um, most of you know. He's our president and CEO of the National Minority Quality Forum and is the founding president in, of this organization, which is a 501c3 nonprofit research and advocacy organization that is headquartered in Washington, DC. The mission of NMQF is to reduce patient risk by assuring optimal care for all. And our vision is an American health services, research, delivery, and financing system whose operational principle is to reduce patient risk for minimal morbidity and mortality while improving quality of life. Dr. Puckern received his doctorate from Brown University. So with that, I would like to um, turn things over to Dr. Puckern, who will give some remarks about COVID-19 and introduce you to a very important tool we're using to really address the spread in uh, education around COVID-19 and community. Dr. Puckern? Thank you so much, Latasha, and good evening uh, to, uh, to everyone. Um, we at the National Minority Quality Forum are really pleased. Um, a lot of our partners are here um, from friendly qualified health um, clinics around the country. Um, some of them involved in a clinical research project that uh, we're doing that Latasha is the uh, coordinator of, and we appreciate them uh, taking the time. Uh, others come 
uh, by way of a project that we're working with the um, uh, East Bay um, Community Foundation and uh, Kaiser Permanente, in which we have been working with um, FQHCs and community-based organizations around COVID. In, in both of those instances, we've learned a lot um, listening very, very carefully. I think one of the things I've learned is I have to take my hat off to the medical professionals who have been fighting um, this disease. Um, uh, it, it is really a tough job. Uh, we uh, pulled up alongside them in, in June of, uh, of last year. So we were there during the summer when the virus was surging and um, screenings uh, were difficult and uh, they were screening people in, 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 um, in their driveways and, and uh, uh, parking garages. It, it was uh, an amazing thing to watch and it, uh, and it really educated me um, considerably. One of the things, and there were many lessons that we learned, one of the things that struck me um, during the uh, during the summer when the vi when we were uh, dealing with the first surge of the virus. And I, I remember um, in, in August, um, there were reports that by February, 500,000 Americans uh, were gonna die uh, from, uh, from the COVID virus. And unfortunately, those predictions uh, turned out to be absolutely correct. Um, what, what I couldn't understand was, um, uh, you know, we were being told that 500,000 people were going to die. That was a national number, uh, but we weren't told where the virus was surging in community. Uh, and so uh, we started to work on a tool that we call the COVID index. I'm going to start to share that with you now. And when we looked at it, we, we could see that, um, and, and the reports were clear, that the virus is really a slow moving train in, in that you could, you could predict, you could forecast uh, where the virus is going to surge around the country, uh, uh, down at the community level. And we thought it was really important um, that uh, Americans understood uh, where the virus was surging um, so that they could take steps uh, to protect themselves uh, against the virus. So we launched this tool, it's called the COVID um, Index. Uh, it's um, um, uh, it, it's free and open uh, to to everyone. We make the underlying data available. Uh, we make clear the methodologies. Um, what we wanted to do was to predict um, COVID surges thirty days in terms of cases, thirty days uh, before they they actually occurred, um, so that people could. Uh, have a sense of where the virus um, was going to be. So in this index, um, you can go backwards. You can all go all the way back uh, to the beginning of the virus, uh, as well as um, you could go forward uh, and understand where the virus was happening um, in the future. Um, you could go in um, to the index, um, and you could you could map uh, by geographies. And here, first of all, um, we allowed you to a filter the population size. Um, so you can look at um, zip codes of, of a certain population size. Um, the statistics, um, we're giving you caseloads, number of deaths, and then picking up on CDC data, uh, we were identifying the vaccine hesitancy uh, population um, um, as, as well. Um, on, on geography, you could map by um, zip code, by three digit state, county, 
Uh, we also thought it was important to map the data by congressional district and state legislative district so that um, you, you could talk to a member of Congress, uh, for example, about uh, the state of the virus in, the, in, in, in their district. The other thing that we did, and this is really where our partnerships came in uh, with FQHCs. Um, so we went to our partners uh, at the time when we launched this, um, there were 12 uh, FQHCs that we were working with. There are now 42 um, and there are additional 100 um, that are coming on stream. And what we did was we went to them and we asked them for the zip code of their service area. Uh, so that we could, on the map, um, show where the virus was in their district. Uh, we also put in here um, the infusion centers. Um, uh, uh, when we launched this, uh, in order to use a monoclonal antibody, um, um, you had to go to an infusion center. And there were questions whether these infusion centers were near minority communities. And so uh, we wanted to make sure that the FQHCs um, understood um, where the infusion centers were uh, in relationship to the communities um, uh, that, that they serve. We also built in here, we're, we're telling you where the virus is surging by zip code. So I think we've pulled up the top 20 zip codes around the country. Um, and you can go in here and, um, and find out exactly, at least uh, in this case, by caseload, uh, where were the top um, zip codes where the virus was surging. Um, around this index, um, we built a whole social media campaign. So we were out on Twitter and Facebook um, and uh, actually taking some of these zip codes where we saw vaccine hesitancy and we would uh, start a whole dialogue about um, a zip code and asking people, so who lives in that zip code? Tell us a little bit about uh, why, they're, why they're vaccine um, hesitant. And in that, we started developing a whole set of relationships. We also learned a lot about what people were doing um, in coming uh, to places like doing Google searches um, um, around COVID and it informed uh, the way in which we were reaching out um, to um, um, potential audiences to view something like the COVID index. Uh, we were also um, had a, a microsite on COVID meds. And so we were, um, using both um, tools like the index, um, microsite, uh, where we were putting information out that we thought people needed to know about uh, vaccines or um, COVID uh, meds, uh, and then running social media um, campaigns. Uh, and those campaigns have been um, very successful. Uh, we also um, ran town hall meetings. Um, in New York, we ran a town hall meeting um, I guess last month actually, um, and um, on uh, and we ran it in conjunction with um, uh, with Twitter, uh, and we had over four hundred. Uh, I'm sorry, four point five million uh, views as a as a result of that um, that uh, town hall. Um, we also have built out a whole other site um, that's um, re recruiting health champions, um, and on that site. Um, we are um, providing toolkits and every and all sorts of, of, of information um, that uh, those in community can use uh, in order to uh, encourage people to, you know, uh, wear their masks, get vaccinated. Um, if you are unfortunate, 
uh, to be exposed to the virus or infected with the virus. Um, there are COVID meds that you might take. And certainly, uh, if you're even more unfortunate to get hospitalized, uh, that there were also treatments, uh, treatments there. All of the data that you see in this index is, is, um, is downloadable um, and you can put it in the Excel spreadsheet. Uh, we built it so that uh, people could use this information in their community uh, in order to um, uh, in, in order to protect those in their community from the virus. We still feel very, very strongly um, that a lot of the deaths, um, hospitalizations, um, certainly in minority communities were completely avoidable. Um, I mean, we have to say that, we have to be honest with ourselves, um, that a lot of people died who didn't have to die uh, because um, our public health system didn't work very well. Didn't work very well in both the delivery of healthcare as well as um, educating the American uh, public. And I, I just want to make one other point and then I'll turn it over to our other speaker because um, the other thing I learned and we all learned uh, at NMQF as we were working um, um, in community and standing alongside the uh, FQHCs who were really doing the hard work. I mean, they're the ones um, who were at risk. I mean, I was sitting on my Zoom, right? And, and they were the ones in community who were actually, uh, who were actually taking the risk. That um, their ability to speak to community wasn't really where it should be, particularly on social media. Um, that there was a lot of disinformation um, and unfiltered information that was getting into the communities that they were that they were serving, um, and, I, and we and we heard a lot of those stories about the challenges of that they were facing from the beginning of the pandemic. All the way, it wasn't just vaccine hesitancy; it was throughout throughout the um, pandemic. And what we realized is that we really needed to amplify their voices. We needed to find ways uh, to help them better communicate uh, with the folks in their community. So we launched something called AI HealthNet as a sort of companion um, to, the, uh, to the index. And basically, uh, it's a common platform that all of our uh, partners are on, including ourselves. Uh, and we're learning how to share audiences. We're learning how to um, to, to um, use our collective voice and um, um, uh, reinforce the message and create that echo chamber uh, that hopefully um, will, next time we face a pandemic, uh, we'll have resources and tools uh, that uh, we don't lose uh, 500,000 people. So with that said, I want to turn it over to Dr. Rodney Taylor. Um, he has some really important information um, uh, to share with you. Um, Gilead uh, has been a, a great partner, um, uh, both in terms of, and I want to include the fact that they, uh, their, their clinical trials were diverse. For those of you who uh, uh, need to understand that, uh, these are therapies that uh, uh, can be very effective in, in our community. So I want to stop here and I'm going to turn it over to Dr. Taylor. Uh, thank you very much, uh, Dr. Puckrin. And uh, thank you, uh, Dr. Lee and the entire NMQF uh, team for putting on such a, a nice webinar for us. I think this is certainly a, a great partnership that we put together here. And I look forward to uh, continuing to work with you all with many of the community health centers out there to bring more um, knowledge directly to the community and the providers in that community. 
So I will share my slides now. So Dr. Taylor, if you could pause, I would like to look at the polling question um, if possible. Okay. Um, so the, the first two questions that we asked were um, for those participants in this webinar, what is your role as uh, in the community healthcare? Um, the majority actually answered other. And so some of them have been placing their responses into the chat, but the second um, largest area is a community health center support. And the um, second question um, was really asking around um, the racial ethnicity of the attendees and 64% were black. Um, so I believe that you have some pre-questions you want to ask before you present. So um, Keiko, if you yeah. can cue those up before he gives all the answers away. <laughs> ah, there they are. Thank you. So the first question, how confident are you that the vaccine studies for COVID-19 included a wide variety of population groups, including minorities? Rank one through four, not aware is one, two, com not confident, three, somewhat confident, four, very confident. The second question, if you or someone close to you tested positive for COVID-19, how confident are you that you would know what to do? Um, for example, um, when to seek further care, um, what to care, uh, what care to ask for, rank one through four, um, those same options. Ready, we'll give it another few seconds to allow everyone to respond. Alrighty, Rodney, it's all yours. All right. Well, again, thank you very much. I'm Rodney Taylor. As, as you know, I'm with uh, Gilead, the, the U.S. Medical Affairs uh, COVID team. And this community outreach deck, we started working on back in March of 2021, when we, when we really started working on this in all earnest. And at that time, we were going into a, a lull, right, in this uh, COVID. We were off our peaks and highs in January, February. We're into March. And by the time we got into April and May, we were wondering to ourselves, will this uh, slide deck even be necessary anymore? Uh, it was looking like things were going to get back to normal. We were going to go back to whatever the new normal would be and educating the community may not be an urgent need anymore. And just, I don't know, three more months later, four months later, we are back uh, at some all-time peaks in cases. And we know that is due to the Delta variant that is spreading across the United States as we speak. The deck was really set up and designed to uh, be usable by everyone and allow for a baseline understanding of what's going on with COVID-19 in the United States. But we wanted to make sure the deck was in a way that you, did, you didn't have to be a medical professional to really understand it. We wanted to keep a lot of the medical jargon out of the deck and make this deck so you can easily translate some of this information or transfer some of this information directly to the patients that you care for or responsible for or family members who may need information that is um, impactful and important for them 
uh, and other and finding in, in places other than uh, social media and the, and the likes. So with that, I will get started and, and go through some of the key points in this uh, community outreach webinar deck. So, so today we want to talk about a few things. Yes. I think, you know, I really want to kind of get that sense of what those responses were before you give the answers away. So we kind of know right. what areas to kind of focus on. So the first question Here's was, how, mm -hmm, how confident are you in the vaccine studies for COVID-19 included a wide variety of population groups, including minorities? The majority of them said somewhat confident. So there was um, uh, great responses there with 44%. Um, the next question, if you or someone close to you tested positive for COVID-19, how confident are you that you would know what to do? I think that the fact that we have so many medical professionals um, on the call, um, the, the most predominant question, uh, answer to that um, question was actually very confident at 56%. Um, okay. I think there are a few other questions if you wanna tee those up as Rodney goes over the content he'll present. Um, So you can answer those on your own. We'll let Rodney continue to present. Okay, well, we will continue here. So what we wanna address today is uh, first and foremost, COVID-19, the state of affairs. You may hear the, the term epidemiology out there. This is the term just kind of looking at what's going on, what are the counts, uh, deaths, rates, hospitalizations, et cetera. So we want to get a sense of what's going on. Second, we're going to talk about slowing the spread, and this will be a lot around vaccination, one of the most important pieces of slowing the spread. And we will also look at some of the practical approaches that you can take to help slow the spread of COVID-19. Then we will move to identification of infections, the type of tests, what symptoms are, what the main symptoms are, so we can have a, a good baseline understanding of what you should uh, understand and see and be aware of as far as symptomology and how to get tested and when. And finally, we will end up talking about treatment in the unfortunate case that you are hospitalized or infected with COVID-19, what are some of the treatment options out there for you? So those are the things we wanna address this evening. And I look forward to uh, presenting you with some of that information. Oh, look like my uh, deck is frozen now. Let's see. Oh, there we go. So the COVID-19 state of affairs, as you can see here from this deck, when we put this deck together, um, this data set is from May of 2021. We had already seen this impact happen everywhere all across the world. And in the United States, as you can see, we had 33 million plus cases. As I look at the CDC website today, we're almost at 36 million cases. So from May to August of the 11th today, we've almost had 3 million more cases. The death rates, of course, continue to, to climb. We're currently at almost uh, 615,000 plus deaths just in the United States alone, not counting the rest of the world. So a lot of this data, as you may know, it changes daily. 
And one important thing to really understand that minorities are disproportionately impacted by COVID-19. As of, as of April of 2021, you can see hospitalization rates for African-Americans was 2.8 times higher than in the white community. And for Latinx, that was three times more hospitalizations for a Hispanic uh, versus white. And that also, uh, same thing with deaths, you know, up to two times more deaths in the African-American population and the Hispanic population, also in the American Indian uh, as compared to whites. So this uh, COVID-19 disease is affecting everyone, but we are seeing a, uh, a major impact in minority communities. And that's something we look to continue to address by providing the type of education that's necessary to make sure everyone understands what's available, what should we do, and when we should do it. Here we talk about some long-term impact of COVID-19. In the top of this, you see a bunch of symptoms. One of the primary reasons why you wanna prevent COVID-19 is not that you just you know, don't wanna be sick for a few weeks. There is something called long COVID syndrome. This is where you can have symptoms for greater than four to six plus weeks. And I see some results have popped up from our poll. I don't know if we want to pause now to look at it, but we can or we can keep going. What do you think, uh, uh, Dr. Lee, as far as this poll? We're going to keep these results. We can revisit them at the end. But if I think we could display okay. the next set of questions as you continue to present, that would be great. Thank you. So uh, back to this long uh, COVID. Some of the symptoms that you see in long COVID involve cardiovascular, long-term fatigue, uh, brain fog, long-term use of oxygen because of shortness of breath or cough. And these are ex symptoms are experienced up to four to six weeks after the initial infection. So these long-term COVID symptoms can last much longer than expected. And we have no idea of how long these symptoms will last. SARS-CoV-2, the virus that caused COVID-19, is a new novel virus, and we don't fully understand the long-term impact of SARS-CoV-2. As you can see on your right, it will affect multiple organ systems, uh, your heart, your lungs, your kidney, and the mental health impact, again, I think we'll, we'll be talking about this for decades to come mental health from just the virus itself, mental health from going through this pandemic in these peaks and valleys uh, time and time again, it is a significant impact. Below you talking uh, financial impact. These are in terms of US dollars, you know, trillions of dollars here, but I think more impactful than that is really your own family economy. If you, are unfortunately enough to get COVID-19 and long-term COVID symptoms that last six plus weeks, that will certainly have an impact on your family economy, your local economy. So the impact economically is not just a U.S. thing or a worldwide thing, but it can be local and directly impact your family. So that's an important thing to think about. So 
preventing COVID-19, A, from a symptom standpoint or a disease standpoint, as well as an economic standpoint, are extremely important going forward. And the next slide is how can we slow the spread? What can we do? What's our part in preventing the spread of COVID-19? So ways to slow the spread, especially in that unvaccinated patient. We tried to make this the largest part of the slide. Get a vaccine. The vaccine is free. It's readily available in most parts of the United States at your local pharmacy. Uh, I'm certain that many of you have healthcare providers, state and local health departments are also providing the vaccine. So it, it is extremely important as a way to pre prevent the spread for people to get vaccinated. It is proven we vaccinated millions of patients at this point in time. So that is the primary way that we can all help slow the spread. We know uh, SARS-CoV-2 that causes COVID-19 is spread primarily through respiratory droplets, as you can see here. We've talked a little bit, and there's some talk early on about spread through surfaces, but that impact seems to be uh, very small. And airborne transmission has been mentioned as also a possibility, but the main way that we know COVID-19 spreads is through respiratory droplets. And what can we do about that? The primary way to stop spread through respiratory droplets is to wear a mask. And that is the top of the list here. There's different type of masks, surgical masks, cloth masks, N95 masks. Those are all important ways. And something, some type of face covering, nose and mouth, is an important way to stop that spread. You can also certainly avoid crowds. We want to continue to wash our hands often clean off different surfaces, as well as stay six feet apart uh, if you can and stay out of crowds if you can. We know small enclosed spaces with poor ventilation can significantly increase your risk of exposure and respiratory droplets can certainly transport in the air in those type of settings. So being in contact with someone who's infected with COVID-19 for as little as 15 minutes uh, can potentially expose you to COVID-19 um, and you will subsequently may uh, have uh, the disease. So it's important to try to wear a mask when you can. And some people who are asymptomatic, so they have no symptoms at all, may still spread the virus and no one will know and we still see a lot of asymptomatic spread. CDC recommends getting the vaccine as soon as it's available to you. This slide was done early as I discussed. We know the vaccine is readily available now. There's no shortage of vaccine. So vaccines help protect you. They protect you as well as others from COVID-19. The vaccine works by teaching your immune system to recognize and fight the virus, which is SARS-CoV-2, that causes COVID-19. And for you to be fully vaccinated, and that's the goal, so if you want to be fully vaccinated, um, it'll be two weeks after a two-dose series. So after the second dose, two weeks later, you will be fully vaccinated. If you're taking a single-dose vaccine, two weeks after that single dose, you would be fully vaccinated. 
the currently available vaccines in the United States are approved or um, FDA um, authorized under emergency use authorization. And the FDA may issue an EUA to grant access to unapproved medical products, uh, such as the vaccine, or unapproved uses of approved medical products during a public health emergency, which that's certainly what we're in. The FDA granted an EUA to the available COVID-19 vaccines based on that determination that the potential benefits of the vaccine, which certainly outweighs the risk. So all the information that we understand now, the vaccine certainly provide a benefit much greater than the risk. And here's a little data around these vaccines that we currently have available in the United States. The initial trials you can see here on the left all of them required at least 30,000 patients per study. If you add all of those uh, trials up from Pfizer, Moderna, Johnson & Johnson, we had over 100,000 patients in the vaccine trials. And this data is from May of 2021. If you look at the participation of minorities in some of these clinical studies for the vaccine, you can see in the Black African-American population, anywhere between 10 and 17% of the patients in the clinical trials for the vaccines were Black or African-American. If you look at the Latinx, Hispanic population, strong representation anywhere from 17 to 45% of the population in the vaccine trials were Hispanic. So strong representation from minority groups in the available U.S., uh, the U.S. vaccines available in the United States, excuse me. So the two vaccines or the three vaccines that we have, two mRNA-based vaccines, the Pfizer, which is two shots, 21 days apart, Moderna, which is two shots, 28 days apart, and a J&J, &J, which is a slightly different technology, but a used technology from uh, other vaccines, a viral vector vaccine, which is one shot. These vaccines are all authorized for use in the United States and they've been shown to be effective. They are certainly effective in preventing you from getting sick or severely ill. And the CDC recommends the first vaccine available to you is the one that you should take. Side effects uh, vaccines, of course they can happen. Some side effects may be normal signs that your body is building protection against the virus that causes COVID-19. Some of those side effects, if you've had a vaccine, you may know wherever you receive the shot, your left arm, right arm, you may, you may have had pain, swelling, or redness there. You may have experienced tiredness, headaches, chills, maybe fever. Uh, so those things may occur after you receive your shot. Um, what you should do, right? If you should contact your healthcare provider if some of those side effects continue to get worse after 24 hours, or if those side effects continue to worry you and they do not go away after a few days. In rare cases, we have seen severe allergic reactions uh, occur with these vaccines, but those have been rare cases. So what can we do? Why get that COVID vaccine? Again, we are in this together. This is a global pandemic. It's happening all across the United States. With this new Delta variant, we all know the cases are now 
in some places and some and some states higher than the peaks that they saw in January and February of 2021. We talked about the cases, right? This this data saying 33 million plus, we know it's 36 million plus now. We can prevent some of those cases. Dr. Puckrin said earlier, some of these cases, hospitalizations, death, certainly preventable with a vaccine. It will prevent severe illness or death. That's, that's clear. We know that. It prevents you from spreading to others, others who may not be eligible for the vaccine because of their young or kids under the age of 12. You certainly want to protect your loved ones, especially those who are most vulnerable, the elderly, pregnant women, people with other health conditions. All of these are reasons why you should uh, get the vaccine um, and, and be fully vaccinated. This gets us to our first myth buster of the day, and I think we have a couple more after this. These are some of the things you may have seen online, saw on social media, heard from friends. Uh, some of this has been going around since the beginning of the pandemic. It's sometimes lulled as the, uh, the virus or the cases decrease, and then it somehow comes back up um, as soon as we get a spike. So something to look at. You know, COVID-19 vaccines will alter my DNA. That's absolutely false. Uh, that, that will not happen, but that's been tossed around in the media, chat rooms, et cetera, et cetera. So that is not true. A COVID-19 vaccine will make you sick with COVID-19. Again, that is not true. And we'll take uh, one of the ones here on the true side. So what is true? Getting vaccinated yourself may also protect other people around you. So vaccination, not only is it good for you, it's also good for people around you because it helps prevent the spread, prevents severe illness, et cetera. So consider being vaccinated. You can talk to your healthcare provider if you want to, but that is not required. Now we'll move to identifying the infections. We'll take a look at symptoms and the different tests that are available. The most common symptoms are listed here. These are symptoms that can help you identify if you're experiencing COVID-19 symptoms or not. Headache has always been at the top of the list, cough, loss of taste and smell. So those top three have been at the top of the list. If you start to reach the point where you're short of breath, you're really time to, it's really time for you to make a move towards seeking care. Um, you can have some GI symptoms, some fatigue, fever, all of those can be symptoms of COVID-19. If you have those symptoms, what should you do? You should call ahead, speak to your healthcare provider, uh, speak to someone at your state, local, or health department. You want to stay home uh, unless you're going out to seek medical care. Distance yourself from other people. If by chance you are unable to quarantine or distance yourself, you live in a shared space, small space, you should wear a mask around others, hopefully an N95 mask, but uh, any mask that you have, you should wear it. And then finally, if you have these symptoms, you should get tested. I recommend that you seek uh, medical care immediately if your symptoms worsen so you can get treatment as early as possible. 
So what type of tests are out there, especially for those who are not fully vaccinated? If you have symptoms of COVID-19 or you have no symptoms at all, but you've been exposed to someone that you know tested positive for uh, coronavirus 19, you should test and quarantine and wait for your results. If they are negative, um, then you should be okay. But if they're not negative and they're positive, there's things that we will discuss on the next slide on what you should do if they're positive. So what type of tests that we have out there available for us today? We have an antibody test. This will test for past infections. So if you had COVID before, they can look at antibodies to see if they're still available and around in your body. You should get this test about one to three weeks after you recover from COVID-19. There's a rapid test, takes about 15 minutes, and there's a standard lab test, and this is a blood test. The test to look for current infection is a nasal swab, the most common, I think, of the tests that we use today. This is, a, this is looking for a current infection. If you have symptoms, you should get that test as soon as possible. If you've been exposed and no symptoms, they still want you to get the test as soon as possible. If you test negative, that's great. You, you may wanna test again in five to seven days after your last exposure, just to confirm that you are negative. There's a rapid test that's 15 to 30 minutes. And then there's the standard swab saliva test with results back in one to three days. But these days, I can tell you, uh, most of these results are coming back within you know, 24 hours. So you'll know uh, fairly soon if you're positive or not. The good thing the CDC has recommended that fully vaccinated people with no COVID symptoms do not need to be tested following just an exposure to someone with COVID-19. So that was one of the other benefits of uh, being fully vaccinated. If you were exposed, you didn't need to run out right away to get a test. But any other person that is not fully vaccinated, they should be tested as soon as possible. Now that you got these test results back, what do they really mean? A negative test. We're happy, right? What that really means is on that day that they collected that sample from you, you did not have COVID-19. A negative test today does not prevent you from getting COVID-19 later. So you tested negative last Wednesday. It was great news. On last Wednesday, you did not have COVID-19. This Wednesday, uh, you could certainly test negative, I mean positive if you were exposed, but that's how the test works. They work based on the data sample was collected and you were negative. If you had a positive test, what does that mean? You should stay home if you can, only to seek medical care. So what you would do, um, call your health provider and, and let them know you've tested positive. You wanna get some rest, stay hydrated. Um, your health provider may recommend over-the-counter medicines for fever, et cetera. Stay in touch with your healthcare provider. Distance yourself from other people. Try to separate or quarantine. Wear a mask if you cannot separate. If you see what they call early warning signs of COVID-19, severe disease like trouble breathing, chest pain, new confusion, inability to stay awake, you should seek care immediately, i.e. go to an emergency room, 
go and seek care immediately because you may be in a critical state. Next myth buster, more misinformation around COVID-19. And again, we'll look at a few of these. I'll, I'll let them stay up a little bit so you can see. Um, you know, one of the earlier ones was uh, sunny, hot weather will stop the spread of COVID-19. We all know that is true. We are all currently living, if you're in the south, southeast, mid-Atlantic, northeast, in some sunny, hot weather, and we are in a peak of spread for COVID-19. So that's one of those early myths that we are no longer, uh, we no longer believe. That is absolutely false. A negative test results means you are now immune to COVID-19. No, you're not. That is absolutely false as well. You are not immune. So these things have been going around for a while. And again, they, they seem to pop up when the cases pop up. So positive side, so some true statements. The vaccine will not give you COVID-19. That is true. And even if you tested negative for COVID-19, you may still need to quarantine in some situations if you are exposed again to someone. So cases of reinfections with COVID-19 have been reported, but they remain rare. That is also true. So you can be reinfected with COVID-19. I know we've heard of people who've had COVID-19 more than once. In our final section for today, we will talk a little bit some, about some of the treatment categories. In the in unfortunate case you have COVID-19, these are some of the things that may be offered to you if you are um, seeking care. For the drug therapy component, we have what we call monoclonal antibodies, sometimes also called neutralizing antibodies. These antibodies uh, help reduce the amount of circulating virus in the blood. We also have available uh, antivirals. What they do, they disrupt viral replication. So very important there. We, we, and thirdly, we have immunomodulators. These will dampen or lessen an overactive immune system, which can occur when you have an infection. So they will dampen that immune system at that time and hopefully allow you to recover. There's also oxygen that can be used as a, a therapy. In this case, the, the first one is what we call non-invasive oxygen therapy. Oxygen delivered by nasal cannula or even a face mask. It's different categories of this uh, oxygen therapy. And then if you are unfortunately enough and you get invasive ventilation therapy, this is when they're talking about you're going on a ventilator. So they're really forcing air directly into your lungs. And this is what we call a critical COVID-19 patient. A lot of these therapies in the clinical trials for COVID-19, they included various patient populations, including minorities, and I think that leads us to our last myth buster of the evening. Again, some COVID-19 misinformation. Um, this was popular uh, early on in the pandemic. Hydroxychloroquine helps prevent or treat COVID-19. Uh, that is clearly not the case. All of the studies uh, did not provide any evidence that hydroxychloroquine was effective to either prevent 
or treat COVID-19. So that's absolutely false. And then steroids are recommended for severe and critically ill patients with COVID-19. Yes, that is true. Steroids are recommended. And one last thing, I will see, look here on the true side and just read this carefully. Antibiotics do not treat COVID-19. That is true. Antibiotics treat bacterial infections. Antibiotics will treat, obviously, uh, viral infections. So that's the, the last myth buster of the day. And I would like to thank all of you for joining and listening today. And we will uh, go into some Q&A uh, if we have some time here. So I will uh, do a stop share. Thank you so much, uh, Rodney, for that presentation. I know there were some questions for individuals um, who would um, like to have uh, both the slides and a recording, and we will be providing that. Um, uh, just a reminder for those of you on the uh, um, uh, webinar today, if you have any questions, please feel free to put those in the Q&A, not in the chat, so that we can either address those in writing or um, um, today uh, um, verbally. I want to review some of the um, polling uh, uh, results. Um, and so in terms of action, um, with what you know now about COVID-19, do you plan on taking any actions either directly for yourself or recommending for your patients, friends, or family members? And overwhelmingly, 93% said yes. So thank you so much for um, your action there. We did receive a few questions in advance um, of today's call. Um, and um, I, the first is really um, focused around back to school, Rodney, as you know, Many states and jurisdictions have gone back to school and um, a, a participant asked um, what can um, parents do um, and what should providers do to um, really uh, encourage parents to keep their children protected because that, that was a true false question we didn't ask, but children can't get COVID. Mm -hmm. Can you speak a little to this? Yes, um, and, and, and this time around in this last surge with this uh, Delta variant, and of course, uh, children under the age of 12 not eligible for a, a vaccine or donation, that is a big concern for parents who have kids going back to school. I have kids going back to school. They're both old enough to, to be vaccinated and are vaccinated, but masks are certainly the recommended course of action for these kids. So to prevent the spread of the Delta variant, which we know uh, is associated with a very high viral load in both unvaccinated and vaccinated individuals, the use of masks is going to be extremely important uh, for our students going back to school here in late August and early fall, uh, early September. So that is the, the most important piece of it. You want to keep them, um, you know, as separated as you can in these schools as an option. I'm sure they're going to do the surface cleaning and those type of things. But the way it's transmitted through respiratory droplets, uh, the mask will be mandatory uh, or should be mandatory in these uh, enclosed spaces. Thank you for that. Um, just a reminder, if there are any questions, I see we still have a lot of participants still on the line. Um, so uh, please do ask your questions um, there as well. Um, one of the things that we didn't really talk about are um, the availability of, of some of those therapeutics. And I think Dr. Puckern touched briefly upon that. 
um, in his opening remarks about our COVID-19 index indicating the monoclonal antibodies, um, but could you speak a little more to the other non-monoclonal antibodies in those treatments? Because uh, Gilead does have a product in this space. Yes, so yes, Gilead has a, a, a product in that space is remdesivir or Veclori. And I can tell you that product is uh, readily available here in the United States for hospitals to order. It's a hospital product. It's for use in patients who are hospitalized with COVID-19. It is uh, administered via an IV infusion, typically for a five-day treatment. And again, that product is uh, readily, readily available uh, through your local hospitals, and they know how to order that product. But the important thing about antivirals that I do want to mention, the sooner you treat with an antiviral, the more effective the product is. So if you find yourself in a state or your patients are getting much sicker, they should seek care as soon as possible so those treatments can be started as soon as possible. Even for monoclonal antibodies, same thing. The sooner you recognize that you're, you're turning for the worse, the, the better off with the start of uh, monoclonal antibodies and antiviral treatments. Great, we have one question in the Q&A. Um, and that question is, um, what is um, the projection on the availability of vaccines for children under 12? I haven't seen a lot of the data yet. There's been rumors that the Pfizer or the Moderna will have their data submitted in September uh, or between September and October. Uh, so hopefully an EUA will be available during that time frame for those two uh, vaccines for uh, the under 12 population. Um, but um, I also saw that the FDA was looking for more long-term safety data as well. So it's a mixed message out there now, um, but I know they are certainly working. Those studies have been recruiting uh, for that population. I I'm pretty sure they're fully recruited now, but you have to wait for the data. And the FDA is certainly waiting on that safety data in this patient population. And so um, as professionals in, in clinical research, I think it's important to um, highlight that there are protected individuals in clinical studies, and oftentimes those include children. So sometimes the FDA's approach on um, the approval process for um, those protected uh, categories uh, is a bit longer and different than what it is for uh, um, healthy adults. Um, so that's something to keep an eye on. Um, uh, I really want to uh, thank everyone. I think there's one last question was in the chat, and I think you briefly spoke to this, that um, COVID-19 is really having an impact on all of us, whether we have COVID ourselves, if we're caring for individuals with COVID. But the question is, um, what about um, the mental approach, um, and how do you actually speak to um, uh, patients and communities who are living in fear? Um, uh, I think some of the things that you've done in your presentation today around myths versus um, uh, facts are great, but what are some of those um, uh, techniques that you yourself, uh, you think would be beneficial in terms of addressing uh, fear? Yeah, I, I think if, if, if I had my way of addressing some of that, sometimes getting information from a wide variety of um, unrecognized unchecked sources can offer more anxiety than anything else. We're getting information from social media, internet sites, 
friends who may not be medical professionals and hearsay information. So information overload. So I think it's up to individuals to find themselves a trusted site to go to or a trusted individual, hopefully a medical professional that can provide them that type of clear direction and information. Because when you get a lot of noise coming from all different directions from unverified sources, it helps, it, it leads to more anxiety and then you don't know which way to go or what to do. And we need a more consistent message going across the board, even from our national organization, CDC, et cetera, et cetera. We need that type of consistent message. But I think individuals should find their trusted source of information and really stick with that and, and, and ignore some of this other noise around uh, COVID-19 um, from the news and social media, et cetera, et cetera. Exactly. I, I really want to recognize that NMQF um, was really great to uh, hear that um, our leadership, um, our, our federal leadership really acknowledged that misinformation is a public health threat. And one of the ways in which NMQF is really addressing misinformation is through our AI Health Net. If you're not um, users of AI Health Net, please go there. We have trusted information that's been vetted. Um, through various sources. Um, we do hope to also include this recording on AI Health Net as well as our YouTube channels um, and sharing of this uh, information to help inform the public. And I really wanna take a, you know, that myth versus fact and put that out there both on social um, as well as on AI Health Net um, for users. We are uh, right Very at good. the hour. So I wanna thank uh, everyone for their participation. Um, you will be receiving um, a little pop-up either now uh, with post questions um, as well, uh, or uh, email um, from NMQF. Uh, Kate will be sending that out um, to all those who registered. Um, it will have um, the link uh, to these slides as well as those questions for you. And then in the coming weeks, we will have the recording available for everyone. So I wanna thank everyone for their time today. I wanna thank Gilead. Um, especially uh, Dr. Taylor and his colleagues for presenting this. And if you or your teams um, would like more in-depth conversations around any of the topics that were shared today, feel free to reach out to NMQF and we will route your questions to the Gilead team so that you and your organization might have a more in-depth conversation um, about these topics. Again, thank you all for um, your uh, uh, participation today and we look forward to having you join us on future um, NMQF webinars. Have a great evening. Thank you. Thank you.